0: Hello,
1: everybody. It's prom night, Eric Garland. I think it's prom night. You're my prom date, officially.
2: All right, I'm in it.
1: <laughs> two. Uh, it's good to have you on the show tonight. Of course, tonight's very special coverage of the January the 6th committee. The first hearing is tonight. It's going to be a blockbuster event. We expect 90 minutes of top-notch well-produced, American-style production tonight. This is not going to be your typical hearing. This is not going to be, you know, five-minute rounds of each representative having their turn to ask questions or anything like that. It's going to be a very flashy event, even by Capitol Hill standards.
2: There's no Jim Jordan going, look, it's just it's, it's just the, the Russia thing and the Russia hoax and the hoax and the Russia thing. There might be a little bit of that, but
1: only if he storms in accidentally because he feels like he's missing his primetime moment. The Republicans are not uh, intending to watch, not many of them, or so they claim. It won't be on Fox News, it will be on Fox Business News, but of course, how can you not watch a historic moment like this? This is truly a moment for the history books. It's a moment of truth. And you said today on Twitter that this was a moment of a coming of age of America. Tell us a little bit more about what you meant by that.
2: Well, um, America has long been known as kind of a, uh, a, an adolescent nation uh, compared to the old empires. When you think of how long the French have been a major world power. For example, or the Russians going back to Peter the Great or Ivan the Terrible, China, you got 3,000 years. America's been the new kid on the block practically, and it's thought of itself as the new kid on the block even decades after it's really been a world hegemon, not just a power equal to the other great powers, because one could say, I think, in the uh, from 1910 to 1930 or so, we were definitely getting great power s- status in our own hemisphere. After World War II, which destroyed Europe and great tracts of Asia and laid empires very low, American soil was not touched. North American soil was intact. Mexico, the United States, and Canada. And the United States rose up as really the world's sole major superpower until the Soviets really consolidated Europe, Eastern and much of its central part, and used the technology stolen from the United States to make nuclear weapons. You know, we've been uneasy with that power. You know, we were content to uh, prevail in World War II, even though we entered quite late, something Americans don't often include that part of the story. You know, (laughs) <laughs> Everyone hey, not American knows exactly what I was like, oh, wow, he knows, like you guys joined late twice. Whereas we're like, hey, we bailed you assholes out of two big ones. You know, we have different. Well, all this is
1: true. Around. All of this is true. So is uh, the whole thing you're saying about, I mean, America's sort of naivete around the world. I mean, they don't seem to they like the glory, but they maybe don't like the, uh, the getting their hands too dirty on the way in
2: and on the way out. Yeah. And, you know, after the, quote, fall of the Soviet Union, which, of course, we know is more of a transformation. America was certainly the sole world superpower and attempted to to raise up its uh, former adversaries and engagement as opposed to competition or mm-hmm. complete combat. You know, and was that the right thing to do? Uh, history will tell us. But, you know, we were naive about how many anti-democratic forces were within the United States. And how many were outside of the United States hoping to reduce us to something less than we are or what we could be and would love to see us crack into eight pieces, fall apart, turn to, uh, you know, certainly get off our human rights high horse and stop bothering them as they are engaged in realpolitik and, you know, don't necessarily believe in democracy. And I think a lot of Americans, the vast majority, in fact, you know, haven't thought of it that way and have been content to think of politics mostly in personal terms, are usually quite juvenile and selfish about politics. They like the idea of America being very big and very powerful. But, you know, everybody that grows up, you don't just have rights, you have responsibilities. Mm. You know, you, you got a driver's is, license, yeah. a car. Yeah. You, you got to drive that thing correctly. You can't speed. You got to pay your insurance. You got to not hit people with it, and all that. These are lessons we learn as we move from adolescence to to adulthood to full adulthood as we take on children and family and mm. the real responsibilities of society. And and America, frankly, has been you know culturally and mentally adolescent a bit late in the game. And uh, here, as sometimes happens with people in late adolescence, our actions, uh, we didn't quite understand the uh, impact of our actions and the actions of others. And I think something terribly tragic almost happened in this country. And that's what we're here to discuss tonight. You know, I've heard them say a lot in the last few
1: days that they've been describing this as a multilateral attack or a multi-point attack on democracy, Those, that's an expression I've been using since 2019 or maybe even sooner here on Narrative. And people at the time were looking at me like I'm a little bit nuts, you know, a little bit on the on the fringe of conspiracy theorists because what am I talking about? What kind of multinational forces or multilateral forces are attacking America? But after you lived through the Donald Trump presidency and he's becoming presidency, and after you've lived through coronavirus and the pandemic and now having lived through you know, a potential world war happening out of Ukraine and, and of course, January the 6th, which was as itself impacted by multinational and multilateral forces from around the world. Mm -hmm. You can't sort of walk away and say, Hey, this is not happening to us. Well, you can, you can choose to put the blinders on. You can say, I'm going to ignore everything that happens to us that might be coming from outside our borders and just say that only things that matter are the things that happen inside our borders. But you'd be wrong at the end of the day, and you may not survive your entire experience because unless you confront your enemy where they are, you know, they've got the upper hand on you. And that's a very significant point as we watch tonight's hearing and how they've embraced this term, this multilateral attack on democracy. You'll hear them say it a few times tonight.
2: You know, I, I think that's right. And I think once you accept that all these complicated things have happened in the last four to six years, you know, that have a mix of domestic forces and, you know, international hostile foreign forces, then you can start looking backwards throughout American history and start asking, well, okay, where were these dark forces prior to 2016, Mm. prior to 2008, prior to September 11th, prior to 1991, when the Soviet Union came apart? You can ask all those questions. And you can ask, who did this or that difficult thing benefit. Who did it benefit for September 11th to have occurred? There were people that definitely benefited. And it was under the cover of, there's just some crazy Muslim guys who just must have hate us and for no reason just uh, ran airplanes into buildings. No Mm -hmm. reason. They just don't like us. But it just so happens that this country that was fixing to be a sole world superpower is now sucked into the place where, you know, the part of the world where the biggest untapped uh, reserves of petroleum happen to reside, and that we're there grinding away for 10, 20 years with our military, you know, our readiness and lethality being corroded, our pockets being drained, our men and women in uniform coming home damaged, mm. tired, traumatized, or not at all for years. And, who you know, let's be frank, who did that benefit? China. Absolutely. You know, and a few other Saudi. countries.
1: Yeah. You know, the other thing to look at tonight, just to watch our timing as we head into the start of this uh, historic hearing, is yes, this multilateral, multinational attack is, is very significant. But so is this idea of a multi-conspiracy attack, if you want to want to call it a, a wheel conspiracy is what some people call it, other people call it a hub and spoke conspiracy. Basically it looks a little like this in a diagram. You've got the ringleader of a conspiracy, you've got various conspiracies happening around him. And he's tied to each of them, uh, or he or she is, and then each conspirator was on their own account. Now you plug in some of the names and faces we've seen in our investigation looking into here and the results of the Department of Justice into this particular chart. And you can see that, you know, you've got already seditious conspiracies involving the um, indictments for the Proud Boys and Stuart Rhodes of the uh, Oath Keepers. You've got potentially conspiracies that could be indicted on the fake slate of electors or the so-called Green Bay conspiracy. There's the big lie conspiracy, which would have been the attempt to create all these fraudulent fake affidavits around whether there was actual fraud in the last election. There's all the grifting that went on with the Flynn's and the Stones. And of course, one of the biggest is the Pence conspiracy, which we'll discuss a lot today. I think we'll hear a lot about Michael Pence as we watch the hearing committee walk in to take their seats.
2: If, you know, with that chart, if the centerpiece there was, uh, if it was all crime, That you'd have a kingpin in the middle and then be a racketeering conspiracy incidentally looking at the chart here and folks you got a lot of great uh, zev shalev charts coming tonight um that's my prediction here but uh here you you know i think the prosecutors depending on what they find for example uh central sources of money if you have uh you know communication between various actors here, and there are more arrows that start going around, you know, what prosecutors might conclude that they can get by a jury is that this was a single conspiracy, that this was a single seditious conspiracy. And if that is true, that we had a single conspiracy with that many players looking to overturn the democratic government of the United States through violent force, you got big trouble there because uh, those are very serious felonies. And of course, if you've looked at the indictments and how they've been written by prosecutors so far, you don't just have the, the top line seditious conspiracy indictment. You also have some obstruction of official proceedings, which is, uh, I believe, 18 U.S. Code uh, 1512, which is almost as serious in terms of like maximum penalty, which is 20 years. So you're looking at Anybody caught up in this is looking at a maximum of 40 years, but of course, there's other things that they've probably done. And uh, that might, if you're on the ground, like uh, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and whatnot, you probably have, as they, has been alleged of them by the Department of Justice so far, that they've engaged in violence against uh, officers, that they've destroyed federal property. So each of these crimes add up. So not everybody's, um, that you can be part of the same seditious conspiracy and not catch exactly the same set of indictments so um so you can you know with regards to seditious conspiracy you know these people can all be added to the same set of indictments i guess that starts to get very unwieldy for the prosecutors at the u.s attorney's office on the district of columbia uh, where where many of these things took place so you might see these things uh, broken up, depending on who was involved. You know, if you're talking about um, finance, obscuring of that financial support for the seditious conspiracy, who knows? Maybe you're going to see that out of the Southern District of New York, where you've got the transfer of the, the funds and the ultimate seditious conspiracy. It's not certain there. What we do know is that there's quite a few people that this involved, and some of them had official positions, that they may have used those positions improperly as part of the seditious conspiracy. They may have betrayed one or more oaths. In the case of anybody who is a military member, either currently or according to the Court of Appeals of the Armed Forces, as per about, uh, I think, June of 2021, thereabouts, it was affirmed that if you have a substantial relationship with the Armed Forces still, As in, you've retired, but you still have a substantial income from the government, from a retirement or other benefits because, you know, you spent more than a four-year tour or whatnot. Let's say you, you did your 20 years. I forget exactly what the definition of substantial relationship is, but it's an ongoing relationship where you might be in the reserves or you're taking... Again, uh, monetary support from the government. You can be held to the Uniform Code but of on Military Justice in 1814. We're a little late, but here we go. Here is uh, it is.
0: Chairman, talking about the start of the We're back to the British and occupied <laughs> the capital. Who sought to thwart the will of the people to stop the transfer of power, and so they did. So, at the encouragement of the President of the United States. The president of the United States trying to stop the transfer of power, a precedent that had stood for 220 years, even as our democracy had faced its most difficult tests. Thinking back again to the Civil War in the summer of 1864, the president of the United States believed he, we would be doomed to bid his bid for re-election. He believed his opponent, General George McClellan, would wave the white flag when it came to preserving the Union. But even with that grim fate hanging in the balance, President Lincoln was ready to accept the will of the voters, come what may. He made a quiet pledge. He wrote down the words, this morning, as for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be reelected. Then it will be my duty to so cooperate with the president elect. It will be my duty. Lincoln sealed that memo and asked his cabinet secretaries to sign it sight unseen. He asked them to make the same commitment he did to accept defeat if indeed defeat was the will of the people, to uphold the rule of law, to do what every president who came before him did and what every president who followed him would do until Donald Trump. Donald Trump lost the presidential election in 2020. The American people voted him out of office. It was not because of a rigged system it was not because of voter fraud. Don't believe me? Hear what his former attorney general had to say about it. I warn those who watching that this con- contains strong language.
3: No, just what I, I've been through, I've had I had three discussions with the president that I can recall. One was on November 23rd, one was on December 1st, and one was on December 14th. And I've been, been through, through sort of the give and take of those discussions. And in that context, I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. And uh you know, I didn't want to be a part of it. And that's one of the reasons that went into me deciding to leave when I did. I observed, uh, I think it was on December 1st, that, you know, how can we, you can't live in a world where, where the incumbent administration stays in power based on its view, unsupported by specific evidence that the election, that there was fraud in the election.
0: Bill Barr on election day 2020 He was the Attorney General of the United States, the top law enforcement official in the country, telling the president exactly what he thought about claims of a stolen election. Donald Trump had his days in court to challenge the results. He was within his rights to seek those judgments. In the United States, law-abiding citizens have those tools for pursuing justice. He lost in the courts just as he did at the ballot box. And in this country, that's the end of the line. But for Donald Trump, that was only the beginning of what became a sprawling, multi step conspiracy aimed at overturning the presidential election, aimed at throwing out the votes of millions of Americans, your votes your voice in our democracy, and replacing the will of the American people with his will to remain in power after his term ended. Donald Trump was at the center of this conspiracy, and ultimately, Donald Trump, the President of the United States, spurred a mob of domestic enemies of the Constitution to march down the Capitol and subvert American democracy. Any legal jargon you hear about seditious conspiracy, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, boils down to this. January 6th was the culmination of an attempted coup, a brazen attempt, as one rioter put it shortly after January 6th, to overthrow the government. The violence was no accident. It represents Senate Trump's last stand, most desperate chance to halt the transfer of power. Now, you may hear those words and think, this is just another political attack on Donald Trump by people who don't like him. That's not the case. My colleagues and I all wanted an outside independent commission to investigate January 6, similar to what we had after 9-11. But after first agreeing to the idea, Donald Trump's allies in Congress put a stop to it. Apparently, they don't want January 6th investigated at all. And in the last 17 months, many of those same people have tried to whitewash what happened on January 6th to rewrite history, call it a tourist visit, Label it legitimate political discourse. Donald Trump and his followers have adopted the words of the songwriter, do you believe me or your lying eyes? We can't sweep what happened under the rug. The American people deserve answers. So I come before you this evening, not as a Democrat, but as an American who swore an oath to defend the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't protect just Democrats or just Republicans. It protects all of us. We the people. And this scheme was an attempt to undermine the will of the people. So tonight and over the next few weeks we're going to remind you of the reality of what happened that day. But our work must do much more than just look backwards. The cause of our democracy remains in danger. The conspiracy to thwart the will of the people is not over. There are those in this audience who thirst for power, but have no love or respect for what makes America great. Devotion to the Constitution, allegiance to the rule of law, our shared journey to build a more perfect union. January 6th and the lies that led to insurrection have put two and a half centuries of constitutional democracy at risk. The world is watching what we do here. America has long been expected to be a shining city on the hill, a beacon of hope and freedom, a model for others when we are at our best. How can we play that role when our house is in such disorder? We must confront the truth with candor, resolve, and determination. We need to show that we are worthy of the gifts that are the birthright of every American. That begins here, and it begins now, with a true accounting of what happened and what led to the attack on our Constitution and our democracy. In this moment, when the dangers of our Constitution and our democracy loom large, nothing could be more important. Working alongside the public servants on this ds has been one of the greatest honors of my time in Congress. It's been a particular privilege to count as a partner in this effort and to count as a friend, the young woman from Wyoming, Ms. Cheney. She's a patriot a public servant of profound courage, of devotion to her oath and the Constitution. It's my pleasure to recognize Ms. Cheney for her opening statement.
4: Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And let me echo uh, those words about the importance of, of bipartisanship and what a tremendous honor it is to work on this committee. Mr. Chairman, at 6.01 p.m. on January 6th, After he spent hours watching a violent mob besiege, attack, and invade our capital, Donald Trump tweeted, but he did not condemn the attack. Instead, he justified it. These are the things and events that happen, he said, when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who've been badly and unfairly treated for so long. As you will see in the hearings to come, President Trump believed his supporters at the Capitol, and I quote, were doing what they should be doing. This is what he told his staff as they pleaded with him to call off the mob to instruct his supporters to leave. Over a series of hearings in the coming weeks, you will hear testimony live and on video from more than half a dozen former White House staff in the Trump administration all of whom were in the West Wing of the White House on January 6th. You will hear testimony that quote, the president did not really want to put anything out, calling off the riot or asking his supporters to leave. You will hear that President Trump was yelling and quote, really angry at advisors who told him he needed to be doing something more. And aware of the rioters chance to hang Mike Pence The president responded with this sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it. You will hear evidence that President Trump refused for hours to do what his staff, his family, and many of his other advisors begged him to do, immediately instruct his supporters to stand down and evacuate the Capitol. Tonight, you will see never-before-seen footage of the brutal attack on our capital, an attack that unfolded while a few blocks away, President Trump sat watching television in the dining room next to the Oval Office. You will hear audio from the brave police officers battling for their lives and ours, fighting to defend our democracy against a violent mob, Donald Trump refused to call off. Tonight and in the weeks to come, you will see evidence of what motivated this violence, including directly from those who participated in this attack. You will see video of them explaining what caused them to do it. You will see their posts on social media. We will show you what they have said in federal court. On this point, there is no room for debate. Those who invaded our capital and battled law enforcement for hours were motivated by what President Trump had told them, that the election was stolen and that he was the rightful president. President Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob and lit the flame of this attack. You will also hear about plots to commit seditious conspiracy on January 6th, a crime defined in our laws as conspiring to overthrow, put down or destroy by force the government of the United States or to oppose by force the authority thereof. Multiple members of two groups, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, have been charged with this crime for their involvement in the events leading up to and on January 6th. Some have pled guilty. The attack on our Capitol was not a spontaneous riot. Intelligence available before January 6th identified plans to quote, invade the Capitol, occupy the Capitol, And take other steps to halt Congress's count of electoral votes that day. In our hearings to come, we will identify elements of those plans and we will show specifically how a group of Proud Boys led a mob into the Capitol building on January 6th. Tonight, I am going to describe for you some of what our committee has learned and highlight initial findings you will see this month in our hearings. As you hear this, all Americans should keep in fact, in mind this fact. On the morning of January 6th, President Donald Trump's intention was to remain president of the United States, despite the lawful outcome of the 2020 election and in violation of his constitutional obligation to relinquish power. Over multiple months, Donald Trump oversaw And coordinated a sophisticated seven part plan to overturn the presidential election and prevent the transfer of presidential power. In our hearings, you will see evidence of each element of this plan. In our second hearing, you will see that Donald Trump and his advisors knew that he had, in fact, lost the election. But despite this, President Trump engaged in a massive effort to spread false and fraudulent information. To convince huge portions of the US population that fraud had stolen the election from him. This was not true. Jason Miller was a senior Trump campaign spokesman. In this clip, Miller describes a call between the Trump campaign's internal data expert and President Trump a few days after the 2020 election.
5: I was
3: in the Oval Office. and at some point in the conversation, Matt Ozkowski, who was the lead data person, was brought on. And I remember he delivered to the president pretty blunt terms uh, that he was going to lose. And that was based, uh, Mr. Miller, on Matt and the data team's assessment of the sort of county by county, state by state results as reported?
5: Correct.
4: Alex Cannon was one of President Trump's campaign lawyers. He previously worked for the Trump Organization. One of his responsibilities was to assess allegations of election fraud in November 2020. Here is one sample of his testimony discussing what he told White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows.
5: I remember
3: a call with uh, Mr. Meadows where Mr. Meadows was asking me what I was finding, and if I was finding anything. And I remember sharing with him that we weren't finding anything that would be sufficient to um, change the results in any of the key states. When was that conversation? Probably in November, mid to late November. I think it was before my child was born. And what was Mr. Meadows' reaction to that information? I believe the words he used were, so there's no there there.
4: There's no there there. The Trump campaign's general counsel, Matt Morgan, gave similar testimony. He explained that all of the fraud allegations and the campaign's other election arguments taken together and viewed in the best possible light for President Trump could still not change the outcome of the election. President Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, also told Donald Trump his election claims were wrong.
3: Repeatedly uh, told the president in no uncertain terms uh, that uh, I did not see evidence of fraud uh, and uh, you know, that would have affected the outcome uh, of the election. And frankly, a year and a half later, I haven't seen anything to to change my mind on that.
4: Attorney General Barr also told President Trump that his allegations about Dominion voting machines were groundless.
3: I saw absolutely zero basis for the allegations, but they were made in such a sensational way that they obviously were influencing a lot of people, uh, members of the public, that there was this systemic corruption in the system and that their votes didn't count and that these machines controlled by somebody else were actually determining it, which was complete nonsense. And it was being laid out there. And I told them that it was that it was uh, crazy stuff and they were wasting their time on that and uh, was doing a great grave disservice to the country.
4: But President Trump persisted, repeating the false dominion allegations in public at least a dozen more times, even after his attorney general told him they were, quote, complete nonsense. And after Barr's resignation on December 23rd, the acting attorney general who replaced him, Jeff Rosen, and the acting deputy, Richard Donahue, told President Trump over and over again that the evidence did not support allegations he was making in public. Many of President Trump's White House staff also recognized that the evidence did not support the claims President Trump was making. This is the president's daughter commenting on Bill Barr's statement that the department found no fraud sufficient to overturn the election.
5: How did that affect your
3: perspective about the election when Attorney General Barr made that statement? It affected my perspective, Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um,
5: So I accepted what he was saying.
4: As you will hear on Monday, the president had every right to litigate his campaign claims, but he ultimately lost more than 60 cases in state and federal courts. The President's claims in the election cases were so frivolous and unsupported that the President's lead lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, not only lost the lawsuits, his license to practice law was suspended. Here is what the court said of Mr. Giuliani. Giuliani communicated demonstrably false and misleading statements to courts, lawmakers, and the public at large in his capacity as lawyer for former President Donald J. Trump. And the Trump campaign in connection with Trump's failed effort at reelection in 2020. As you will see in great detail in our hearings, President Trump ignored the rulings of our nation's courts. He ignored his own campaign leadership, his White House staff, many Republican state officials. He ignored the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security. President Trump invested millions of dollars of campaign funds purposely spreading false information, running ads he knew were false, and convincing millions of Americans that the election was corrupt and that he was the true president. As you will see, this misinformation campaign provoked the violence on January 6th. In our third hearing, you will see that President Trump corruptly planned to replace the Attorney General of the United States so the U.S. Justice Department would spread his false, stolen election claims. In the days before January 6th, President Trump told his top Justice Department officials, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Senior Justice Department officials, men he had appointed, told him they could not do that because it was not true. So President Trump decided to replace them. He offered Jeff Clark, an environmental lawyer at the Justice Department, the job of acting attorney general. President Trump wanted Mr. Clark to take a number of steps, including sending this letter to Georgia and five other states saying the US Department of Justice had quote, identified significant concerns that may have impacted the outcome of the election. This letter is a lie. The Department of Justice had, in fact, repeatedly told President Trump exactly the opposite, that they had investigated his stolen election allegations and found no credible fraud that could impact the outcome of the election. This letter and others like it would have urged multiple states to withdraw their official and lawful electoral votes for Biden. Acting Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue described Jeff Clark's letter this way, quote, This would be a grave step for the department to take and could have tremendous constitutional, political, and social ramifications for this country. The committee agrees with Mr. Donahue's assessment. Had Clark assumed the role of attorney general in the days before January 6th and issued these letters, the ramifications could indeed have been grave. Mr. Donahue also said this about Clark's plan.
3: And I recall again saying what you're proposing is nothing less than the United States Justice Department meddling in the outcome of a presidential election.
4: In our hearings, you will hear firsthand how the senior leadership of the Department of Justice threatened to resign, how the White House counsel threatened to resign and how they confronted Donald Trump and Jeff Clark in the Oval Office. The men involved, including Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen and Acting Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue were appointed by President Trump. These men honored their oaths of office, they did their duty, and you will hear from them in our hearings. By contrast, Jeff Clark has invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and refused to testify. Representative Scott Perry, who was also involved in trying to get Clark appointed as Attorney General, has refused to testify here. As you will see, Representative Perry contacted the White House in the weeks after January 6th to seek a presidential pardon. Multiple other Republican congressmen also sought presidential pardons for their roles in attempting to overturn the 2020 election. In our fourth hearing, we will focus on President Trump's efforts to pressure Vice President Mike Pence to refuse to count electoral votes on January 6th. Vice President Pence has spoken publicly about this.
3: President President Trump Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The
5: presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un American than the notion that any one person
3: could choose the American president.
4: What President Trump demanded that Mike Pence do wasn't just wrong, it was illegal and it was unconstitutional. You will hear this in great detail from the vice president's former general counsel. Witnesses in these hearings will explain how the former vice president and his staff informed President Trump over and over again that what he was pressuring Mike Pence to do was illegal. As you will hear, President Trump engaged in a relentless effort to pressure Pence, both in private and in public. You will see the evidence of that pressure from multiple witnesses, live and on video. Vice President Pence demonstrated his loyalty to Donald Trump consistently over four years, but he knew that he had a higher duty to the United States Constitution. This is testimony from the Vice President's Chief of Staff.
3: So well, I think the vice president was proud of uh, his four years of service and he felt like much had been accomplished in those four years. And I think he was proud to have uh, stood beside the president for all that had been done. But I think he ultimately knew that his fidelity to the Constitution was his first and foremost oath. And um, and that's that's what he articulated publicly. And I think that that's what he felt. His fidelity to the Constitution was more important than his fidelity to President Trump and his The oath he took. Yep. Yes.
4: You'll also hear about a lawyer named John Eastman. Mr. Eastman was deeply involved in President Trump's plans. You'll hear from former Fourth Circuit Federal Judge Michael Ludig, a highly respected leading conservative judge. John Eastman clerked for Judge Ludig. Judge Ludig provided counsel to the Vice President's team in the days before January 6th. The judge will explain how Eastman, quote, was wrong at every turn. And you will see the email exchanges between Eastman and the Vice President's counsel as the violent attack on Congress was underway. Mr. Jacob said this to Mr. Eastman, Thanks to your bullshit, we are under siege. You will also see evidence that John Eastman did not actually believe the legal position he was taking. In fact, a month before the 2020 election, Eastman took exactly the opposite view on the same legal issues. In the course of the Select Committee's work to obtain information from Mr. Eastman, we have had occasion to present evidence to a federal judge. The judge evaluated the facts and he reached the conclusion that President Trump's efforts to pressure Vice President Pence to act illegally by refusing to count electoral votes likely violated two federal criminal statutes. And the judge also said this, if Dr. Eastman and President Trump's plan had worked, it would have permanently ended the peaceful transition of power, undermining American democracy and the Constitution. If the country does not commit to investigating and pursuing accountability for those responsible, the court fears January 6th will repeat itself. Every American should read what this federal judge has written. The same judge, Judge Carter, issued another decision on Tuesday night, just this week indicating that John Eastman and other Trump lawyers knew that their legal arguments had no real chance of success in court, but they relied on those arguments anyway to try to, quote, overturn a democratic election. And you will hear that while Congress was under attack on January 6th and the hours following the violence, the Trump legal team in the Willard Hotel war room continued to work to halt the count of electoral votes. In our fifth hearing, you will see evidence that President Trump corruptly pressured state legislators and election officials to change election results. You will hear additional details about President Trump's call to Georgia officials, urging them to quote, find 11,780 votes, votes that did not exist, and his efforts to get states to rescind certified electoral slates without factual basis and contrary to law. You will hear new details about the Trump campaign and other Trump associates' efforts to instruct Republican officials in multiple states to create intentionally false electoral slates and transmit those slates to Congress, to the Vice President and the National Archives, falsely certifying that Trump won states he actually lost. In our final two June hearings, you will hear How President Trump summoned a violent mob and directed them illegally to march on the United States Capitol. While the violence was underway, President Trump failed to take immediate action to stop the violence and instruct his supporters to leave the Capitol. As we present these initial findings, keep two points in mind. First, our investigation is still ongoing. So what we make public here will not be the complete set of information we will ultimately disclose. And second, the Department of Justice is currently working with cooperating witnesses and has disclosed to date only some of the information it has identified from encrypted communications and other sources. On December 18th, 2020, a group including General Michael Flynn, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and others visited the White House. They stayed late into the evening. We know that the group discussed a number of dramatic steps, including having the military seize voting machines and potentially rerun elections. You will also hear that President Trump met with that group alone for a period of time before White House lawyers and other staff discovered the group was there and rushed to intervene. A little more than an hour after Ms. Powell, Mr. Giuliani, General Flynn, and the others finally left the White House, President Trump sent the tweet on the screen now, telling people to come to Washington on January 6th. Be there, he instructed them, will be wild. As you will see, this was a pivotal moment. This tweet initiated a chain of events. The tweet led to the planning for what occurred on January 6th, including by the Proud Boys, who ultimately led the invasion of the Capitol and the violence on that day. The indictment of a group of Proud Boys alleges that they planned, quote, to oppose by force the authority of the government of the United States. And according to the Department of Justice, on January 6, 2021, the defendants directed, mobilized, and led members of the crowd onto the Capitol grounds and into the Capitol, leading to the dismantling of metal barricades, the destruction of property, the breaching of the Capitol building, and the assaults on law enforcement. Although certain former Trump officials have argued that they did not anticipate violence on January 6th, the evidence suggests otherwise. As you will see in our hearings, the White House was receiving specific reports in the days leading up to January 6th, including during President Trump's Ellipse rally, indicating that elements in the crowd were preparing for violence at the Capitol. And on the evening of January 5th, the President's close advisor, Steve Bannon, said this on his podcast.
3: All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow.
4: As part of our investigation, we will present information about what the White House and other intelligence agencies knew and why the Capitol was not better prepared. But we will not lose sight of the fact that the Capitol Police did not cause the crowd to attack. And we will not blame the violence that day, violence provoked by Donald Trump, on the officers who bravely defended all of us. In our final hearing, you will hear a moment-by-moment account of the hours-long attack from more than half a dozen White House staff, both live in the hearing room and via videotape testimony. There's no doubt that President Trump was well aware of the violence as it developed. White House staff urged President Trump to intervene and call off the mob. Here is a document written while the attack was underway by a member of the White House staff advising what the president needed to say. Quote, anyone who entered the Capitol without proper authority should leave immediately. This is exactly what his supporters on Capitol Hill and nationwide were urging the president to do. He would not. You will hear that leaders on Capitol Hill begged the president for help, including Republican leader McCarthy, who was quote, scared, and called multiple members of President Trump's family after he could not persuade the president himself. Not only did President Trump refuse to tell the mob to leave the Capitol, he placed no call to any element of the United States government to instruct that the Capitol be defended. He did not call his secretary of defense on January 6th. He did not talk to his attorney general. He did not talk to the Department of Homeland Security. President Trump gave no order to deploy the National Guard that day and he made no effort to work with the Department of Justice to coordinate and and deploy law enforcement assets. But Vice President Pence did each of those things. For example, here is what General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, testified to this committee.
3: So, with uh, two or three calls with Vice President Pence. He was very animated and he issued very explicit uh, very direct, unambiguous orders. There was no question about that. And, and he was, and and I can get you the exact quotes, I guess, from some of our records somewhere. But he was very animated, very direct, very firm. Uh, and to Secretary Miller, get the military down here, get the guard down here, put down this uh, situation, uh, et cetera.
4: By contrast, here is General Milley's description of his conversation with President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on January 6th.
3: He said, um, We have have to kill the narrative that the vice president is making all the decisions. Uh, We need to establish the narrative that. you know, that the president is still in charge and that things are steady or stable or what's got to say. I immediately interpret that as politics, politics, politics. Uh, red flag for me personally, no action, but I remember it distinctly.
4: And you will hear from witnesses how the day played out inside the White House, how multiple White House staff resigned and discussed, and how President Trump would not ask his supporters to leave the Capitol. It was only after multiple hours of violence that President Trump finally released a video instructing the riotous mob to leave. And as he did so, he said to them, quote, we love you and you're very special. You will also hear that in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, members of the president's family, White House staff, and others tried to step in to stabilize the situation, quote, to land the plane before the presidential transition on January 20th. You will hear about members of the Trump cabinet discussing the possibility of invoking the 25th amendment and replacing the president of the United States. Multiple members of President Trump's own cabinet resigned immediately after January 6th. One member of the cabinet suggested that the remaining cabinet officers needed to take a more active role in running the White House and the administration. But most emblematic of those days is this exchange of texts between Sean Hannity and former President uh, Trump's Press Secretary, Kayleigh McEnany. Sean Hannity wrote in part, he now, no more crazy people, no more stolen election talk. Yes, impeachment and 25th Amendment are real. Many people will quit. Ms. McEnany responded in part, love that. That's the playbook. The White House staff knew that President Trump was willing to entertain and use conspiracy theories to achieve his ends. They knew the president needed to be cut off from all of those who had encouraged him. They knew that President Donald Trump was too dangerous to be left alone, at least until he left office on January 20th. These are important facts for Congress and the American people to understand fully. When a president fails to take the steps necessary to preserve our union, or worse, causes a constitutional crisis, we're at a moment of maximum danger for our republic. Some in the White House took responsible steps to try to prevent January 6th. Others egged the president on. Others who could have acted, refused to do so. In this case, the White House counsel was so concerned about potentially lawless activity that he threatened to resign multiple times. That is exceedingly rare and exceedingly serious. It requires immediate attention, especially when the entire team threatens to resign. However, in the Trump White House, it was not exceedingly rare and it was not treated seriously. This is a clip of Jared Kushner addressing multiple threats by White House counsel Pat Cipollone and his team of lawyers to resign in the weeks before January 6th. Jared, uh, are you aware of um, instances where uh, Pat Cipollone threatened to resign? I I kind of, uh,
3: like I said, my interest at that time was on trying to get as many pardons done. Uh, And I know that, you know, he was always him and the team were always saying, Oh, we're going to resign. We're not going to be here if this happens, if that happens. So I kind of took it up to just be
5: whining, to be honest with you.
4: Whining. There's a reason why people serving in our government take an oath to the constitution. As our founding fathers recognized democracy is fragile. People in positions of public trust are duty bound to defend it, to step forward when action is required. In our country, we don't swear an oath to an individual or a political party. We take our oath to defend the United States Constitution. And that oath must mean something. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Finally, I ask all of our fellow Americans, as you watch our hearings over the coming weeks, please remember what's at stake. Remember the men and women who have fought and died so that we can live under the rule of law, not the rule of men. I ask you to think of the scene in our Capitol Rotunda on the night of January 6th. There in a sacred space in our constitutional republic, the place where our presidents lie in state, watched over by statues of Washington and Jefferson, Lincoln and Grant, Eisenhower, Ford, and Reagan. Against every wall that night, encircling the room, there were SWAT teams, men and women in tactical gear with long guns, deployed inside our Capitol building. There in the rotunda, these brave men and women rested beneath paintings, depicting the earliest scenes of our Republic, including one painted in 1824, depicting George Washington resigning his commission, voluntarily relinquishing power, handing control of the Continental Army back to Congress. With this noble act, Washington set the indispensable example of the peaceful transfer of power, what President Reagan called nothing less than a miracle. The sacred obligation to defend this peaceful transfer of power has been honored by every American president except one. As Americans, we all have a duty to ensure that what happened on January 6th never happens again, to set aside partisan battles, to stand together to perpetuate and preserve our great republic. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: As we provide answers to American people about January 6th, It's important that we remember exactly what took place. That this was no tourist visit to the Capitol. Most of the footage we are about to play has never been seen. The select committee obtained it as a part of our investigation. This isn't easy to watch. I want to warn everyone that this video includes violence and strong language. Without objection, I include in the record, a video presentation of the violence of January 6th.
5: Proud of your boys! Proud, proud of boy! your boys! Proud of your boys! Yeah, just for awareness, be advised, there's probably about 300
6: uh, proud boys they are marching eastbound in this uh, 400 block of um, kind of independence actually on the mall towards the United States Capitol.
4: I am not allowed to say what's going to happen today because everyone's just going
5: to have to watch for themselves
4: but it's going to
5: happen something's going to happen
4: do the
5: picture.
3: I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify. And we become president and you are the happiest people. Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness.
5: You have to show strength, and you have to be strong. USA! 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 USA, USA. USA, USA, Cruiser 50. It does look like we're gonna have an ad hoc march stepping off here. There's a crowd surge heading east. We love Trump. 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 We love
3: Trump mike pence i hope you're going to stand up for the good of our constitution and for the good of our country and if you're not i'm going to be very disappointed in you i will tell you right now
5: Get yeah. back, ladies! Get back, ladies! Say, you get priority. We just had to circle, breach the line. We need backup. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you Madam Speaker, the Vice President and the United States Senate. 50, we're going to give riot warning. We're going to give riot warning. We're going to try to get compliance, but this is now effectively a riot. 49 hours, declaring it a riot. 5 to 50,
6: be advised. Uh, Cal Police 1 advisor trying to breach and get into the Capitol.
5: Yeah, copy. You 22. We're about five weeks out. We're trying to make our way through all We're trying to make our way through all We have a breach of the Capitol! Breach of the Capitol! To the upper level! Jack, be they're requesting additional resources on the east side as they've broken into that window and they're trying to kick it in.
6: Without objection, the chair declares the house in recess pursuant to Clause 12B of Rule 1.
5: My kids didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our constitution, giving states a chance to certify a correct set of facts, not the fraudulent or inaccurate ones, which they were asked to previously certify. U.S. demands the truth. Bring it Bring out, Bring out! Bring out Bring it out! Putin. Bring it Bring it out! Hey, Bring Bring it out! Bring i to get out the fight for you they have some oh, and right. him, right? oh, oh, him back fire. Here. Fire. hold this we're going to get too many fucking people hurt. look at this fucking we're fucking. we need an area for the housing members they're all walking over now through the tunnels <laughs> We're trying to hold the upper bit. We're trying to hold the upper deck now. We need to hold the doors of the capital. I need to support. I am going to back to the other I'm Be advised that Capitol Police is going to start moving their resources inside. They're going to start the M4 officers first. Okay. Okay. H208 with four members. The doors barricade. There's people flooded the hallways outside. We have no way out. Evac officers still remaining on the house floor and the, on the third floor to use the, the subway themselves. It's time to evacuate so we can secure the members on the other side. Copy. <laughs> It's up to us people now, the American people. What were to do. One more time. I'll tell you, ready to do. And whatever it takes, I'll lay my life down if it takes. Absolutely. That's why we showed up today. Bring her out Hey, we're coming in. Bring her out. Fuck you, you back up. You back up. You back up. All back <laughs> Get him up. Get him up. Get him up. Get him <laughs> Straight in the center of that west carriage
0: Pursuant to the order of the committee of tonight, the chair declares the committee in recess for a period of approximately 10 minutes.
1: Well, Eric, that's uh, quite remarkable. Uh, What are your thoughts as you were taking in some of that, that first session there?
2: Well, let's go through the highlights. Going back through, let's see some of the new stuff that we haven't seen before. Because unfortunately, we have seen pictures of the mob taking the Capitol before. But looking at uh, the the testimony of Bill Barr, where he's like, "Yeah, no, that was bullshit," and uh, very powerful, not, very not, very
1: powerful. Important to have that testimony. We've not we've not even had a hint that that's what he said. And now, right. now we know. Now we know exactly what he said to that committee. A Very very powerful testimony.
2: And who else did he influence in that? In her own words. Ivanka Trump, her own father under the treason bus, where he belongs. And uh, when the uh, investigators asked um, if she was influenced by Bill Barr, she said, I, yeah, I respect Bill Barr. And he said, it's over. Um, I thought it was a well, moment, really, when you got the president's daughter
1: and also his son-in-law describing uh, the president as whining, describing him as not listening to reality. I,
2: Jared's position was—I maybe we saw it differently. I mm-hmm. thought Jared. Jared said, "Oh, I really wasn't paying attention to all that they say, kept saying they were going to quit because of this treason stuff." Mm-hmm. I was focused on the pardons. Mm-hmm. You know, Ivanka was clear-cut, not cool. Jared mm-hmm. was like, "Oh, I—I—I I, I wasn't involved. I—I I didn't have treasonous relations with that treason." Mm-hmm. Yeah, didn't yeah, inhale. that's true. That's true.
1: But yes, I still remarkable to see both of those two. In testimony, distancing themselves from the man who gave them the most powerful positions in the world. I mean, for by all accounts, Jared was the deputy president for the period of time that they were in the office there. It's like he has an extraordinary power. And it's for him to suddenly not pay attention on the way out the door, well, well that's really interesting, you know. It does seem yeah. ridiculous that all these people walked out, you know. They all knew what was going on. They knew what was gonna come. They didn't say anything, they just quit their jobs and left. So even though we all sort of had an idea of something momentous was coming, but, you know, don't you just resign and then go on TV and say, this is what this man did or he's planning to do, you know, so we've got to stop this right away. That seems to be the much more logical act than just, oh, we're just going to
2: retire early while we wait for an insurrection and an attempted coup to take place. Oh, I think it was plenty logical. It was just the logic of self-preservation. Yes, that seems to be a permeated was, uh, Well, ooh, the um the coup didn't work. Well, gosh, guys, I feel uncomfortable. This is awkward now. Yeah. Really? Because I mean, they'd been talking about this kind of thing for years, and they'd been attacking the validity of a U.S. election for months. And you know, no, you, there was no way out of this. <laughs> yeah, but that, but you know, there they were in
1: testimony, not feeling too badly about attacking the former president and criticizing him. But frankly, they should have just really done something earlier. It seems insane that they took so long to not even warn people that there was so much going on inside the White House, that there was an attempt to install an alternative attorney general, that there was an attempt to... You know, subvert the elections in every swing state. Uh, we knew some of this, but we didn't know all of it. And it certainly seems like it's kind of the critical stuff that you'd want an attorney general to share with you on the way out the door. We can recast Bill Barr as a hero. I, I will not be one of those people out there recasting him as a hero. Uh,
2: yeah, it's laudable that he at least resigned, but I don't see you know, the rest of it. I'm not quite sure about I mean, I don't really care what history thinks of Bill Barr. I kind of care what the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland thinks of Bill Barr. If there are crimes that have been committed, I'm sort of interested in that. It is useful to have his recollection of his opinion that he claims to have given during uh, the waning days of the Trump administration. Yep. That that's useful. What I thought was most interesting about all that is Liz Cheney's foreshadowing that these guys knew it was bullshit. And that is really key when you talk about prosecution here versus just discovering, you know, I'm trying to get to the bottom of it. Like, I really didn't like any of the discussion about, uh, oh, Trump's crazy, which started long before. Oh, he's nuts. Oh, he's uh, my friend's a psychologist, a gerontologist. Maybe he thinks that Trump might be cognitively impaired which is like, stop making this easier when prosecution comes around, guys. Like one, actual experts with medical opinions don't give opinions about patients they don't have a chart on that they haven't examined. So that's one thing. But also, you're letting the guy off the hook by saying he wasn't completely capable and within his faculties, and you're giving him a chance to declare himself non-compos mentis at trial and maybe just be put out to pasture rather than prosecuted. But what's interesting further to that from Liz Cheney's foreshadowing, he's like, mm. they knew that the arguments they were making in court were fraudulent. So that just adds so much more mindset, what prosecutors would call mens rea, mm. uh, the state of mind. You got motive. Why would you want to do something? Mm. Then you have... Um, you know what was your state of mind when you took the actions and actus reus which mm-hmm. is you took action based on your motive and your state of mind and you willingly crossed the line into felony territory i forget if liz cheney's an attorney but uh there's sounds like a congress <laughs> um <laughs>
1: I was really struck by her. I commented in
2: my Twitter stream that her whole tone was like when you're a teenager trying to bullshit your parents on something that they totally have you caught on and, you know, you really have no chance and mom is just like, "No, no, no. This is how this is going to go." I mean, she's just got that calm, firm, I think she said it kind of explicitly a few times. This really isn't a matter of debate. Yeah. We have the evidence. <laughs> Done. Here's, here's one thing I think that was really important is this idea that
1: this was not just about the group of violent individuals who knocked on the door and stormed into the Capitol. That there was a series of events. They counted seven, I think, seven stages that, and I'll go through them later on after the hearing ends. But in general, there's sort of the three themes that are pretty evident here. There was the big lie, which is the attempt to make sure that the fake claims and affidavits questioning the validity of the election results. Then there was the actual sedition, which involved the breaking down doors and, uh, and surging and storming the Capitol. But then there's also this Pence card, which I think is one of the most intriguing and most distressing things of the entire event, was an attempt to get the vice president of the United States to overstep his boundaries, really, and somehow declare Trump the winner of the elections using this false slate of electors. And then his disagreement with that, or saying that he wouldn't go through with that, resulted in the president of the united states saying that he thought maybe the crowd is correct and that pence maybe is the problem and should be essentially hinting suggesting that he should be killed that was his actual mm-hmm. response so not only yeah. setting up Pence as, as the fall guy but then absolutely following through on that and then mm-hmm. attempting to actually take the vice president's life that third act of this three-part uh, crime here is Unbelievable. And, you know, anyone who walks away from today's hearing and says that the GOP, or like the GOP would likely say, that there's nothing there there, um, they're wrong. This is the, one of their people that his life was attempted to be killed. You know, that was him, one of their people who was out there. So it's distressing beyond belief that the GOP is not even taking that part seriously when it's one of their top guys.
2: Well, it's funny. There's a bit of a theme. It's like America first, but not you Americans uh, back the blue, but kill these policemen. And boy, it's right versus left, unless you're in my way of taking power, in which case, I don't care what political party you belong to. I'll kill you, too.
0: Right. Again, I back want to thank session. our so witnesses let's, uh, let's for being with us the this now. evening to share their firsthand accounts of that terrible day. I know that some of the witnesses from our first hearing are in the room with us along with some of the family members, friends and widows of the officers who lost their lives as a result of the attack. Thank you all for being here for us and the American people. Officer Carolyn Edwards has been with the United States Capitol Police since 2017. On January 6th, Officer Edwards was assigned to the First Responder Unit, which serves as the first line of defense at the Capitol Complex. She also served as a member of the Civil Disturbance Unit, a special subset of the Uniform Division trained to respond to mass demonstration events. Officer Edwards is a graduate of the University of Georgia and currently is working on a master's degree in intelligence analysis from John Hopkins University. Nick Quisted is an acclaimed filmmaker whose credits include documenting stories from war zones in Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. On January 6th, Mr. Quickstead was working on a documentary about, quote, why Americans are so divided when Americans have so much in common, end quote. During that day, Mr. Quested interviewed and documented movements of the people around the Capitol, including the first moments of the violence against the Capitol Police and the chaos that ensued. I will now swear in our witnesses. The witnesses will please stand and raise your right hand. Do you swear and affirm on the penalty of perjury that the testimony you're about to give is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Let the record reflect the witnesses answered in the affirmative. Without objection, the witnesses' statement will be included in the record. Pursuant to Section 5C8 of House Resolution 503, I recognize myself for questioning. As you saw just a few minutes ago, the Proud Boys instigated the first breach of the Capitol just before one o'clock p.m. where rioters pushed over barricades near the Peace Circle at the foot of the Capitol. Our two witnesses tonight were both there at the time of that first breach. Officer Edwards was standing with other officers behind a line of bike racks that marked the perimeter of the Capitol grounds. She bravely tried to prevent an angry crowd from advancing on the Capitol. Unfortunately, she was overrun and knocked unconscious as the crowd advanced on the Capitol. Mr. Quickstead was a few yards away from Officer Edwards taking footage of the Proud Boys as part of his work on a documentary film. Most of his footage has never been shown publicly before we shared it this evening. Officer Edwards, I'd like to start by asking if you could tell us why you believe it's important for you to share your story this evening with the committee and the American public. Please, uh, your microphone.
7: Um, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, r- I really appreciate it. And thank you to the committee for having me here to testify. Um, I was called a lot of things on January 6, 2021, and the days thereafter. I was called Nancy Pelosi's dog, called incompetent, called a hero, and a villain. I was called a traitor to my country, my oath, and my Constitution. In actuality, I was none of those things. I was an American, standing face to face with other Americans, asking myself how many times, many, many times, how we had gotten here. I had been called names before, but never had my patriotism or duty been called into question. I, who got up every day, no matter how early the hour or how late I got in the night before to put on my uniform and to protect America's symbol of democracy. I, who spent countless hours in the baking sun and freezing snow to make sure that America's elected officials were able to do their job. I, whose literal blood, sweat, and tears were shed that day defending the building that I spent countless holidays and weekends working in. I am the proud granddaughter of a Marine that fought in the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir in the Korean War. I think of my papa often in these days, how he was so young and thrown into a battle he never saw coming, and answered the call at a great personal cost. How he lived the rest of his days with bullets and shrapnel in his legs, but never once complained about his sacrifice. I would like to think that he would be proud of me. Proud of his granddaughter that stood her ground that day and continued fighting even though she was wounded like he did many years ago i am my grandfather's granddaughter proud to put on a uniform and serve my country they dared to question my honor they dared to question my loyalty and they dared to question my duty I'm a proud American and I will gladly sacrifice everything to make sure that the America my grandfather defended is here for many years to come. Thank you.
0: Officer Edwards, your story and your service is important. And I thank you for being here tonight. Ms. Quickfit, I also like to ask you to introduce yourself Can you tell us how you found yourself in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, 2021?
8: Good evening, uh, Chair and Madam Vice-Chair. Thank you for the introduction. Um, As stated in the winter of 2020, I was working on a documentary. As part of that documentary, I filmed several rallies in Washington, D.C. on December 11th and December 12th. And I learned there would be a rally on the Mall on January 6th. So my three colleagues and I came down to document the rally. According to the permit of the event, there was going to be a rally at the Ellipse. We arrived at the mall and observed a large contingent of proud boys marching towards the Capitol. We filmed them uh, and almost immediately I was separated from my colleagues. I documented the crowd turned from protesters to rioters to insurrectionists. I was surprised at the size of the group, the anger and the profanity. And for anyone who didn't understand how violent that event was, I saw it, I documented it, and I experienced it. Uh, I heard incredibly aggressive chanting, and I shared, subsequently shared that footage with the authorities. I'm here today pursuant to a House subpoena. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Mr. it. The Select Committee has conducted extensive investigative work to understand what led the Proud Boys and other rioters to the Capitol on January 6th. We've obtained substantial evidence showing that the President's December 19th tweet calling his followers to Washington, D.C. on January 6th energized Individuals from the Proud Boys and other extremist groups. I'd like to play a brief video highlighting some of this evidence.
6: My name, My name is Marcus, Marcus Childress, Childress, and I'm an investigative counsel for the Select Committee to Investigate the January 6th Attack on the United States Capitol.
3: What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. Like Rous- me white supremacist and white supremacist. White White Proud Boys. Boy. Stand back and stand by.
6: Uh, After he made this comment, Enrique Terrio, then chairman of the Proud Boys, said on parlor, standing by, sir. During our investigation, we learned that this comment during the presidential debate actually led to an increase in membership from the Proud Boys. Would you say that Proud Boys numbers increased after the stand back, stand by comment? Exponentially. I'd say tripled, probably, with the potential for a lot more eventually.
5: And did you ever sell any stand back and stand by merchandise? Uh,
6: One of the vendors on my page actually beat me to it, but I wish I would have,
3: I wish I would have made a stand back, stand by shirt.
6: On December 19th, President Trump tweeted about the January 6th rally and told attendees, be there, we'll be wild. Many of the witnesses that we interviewed were inspired by the president's call and came to D.C. for January 6th. But the extremists, they took it a step further. They viewed this tweet as a call to arms. A day later, the Department of Justice describes how the Proud Boys created a chat called the Ministry of Self-Defense Leadership Chat. Uh, In this chat, the Proud Boys established a command structure in anticipation of coming back to DC on January 6th. The Department of Justice describes Mr. Tarrio coming into possession of a document called the 1776 Returns, which describes uh, individuals occupying key buildings around the United States Capitol the Oath Keepers are another group that the committee investigated.
3: You better get your ass to D.C. folks this Saturday. Yeah, if you don't, there's, there'll be no more
5: Republic. But we're not going to let that happen. It's not even an if. It's, it's either President Trump is encouraged and, and bolstered and strengthened to do what he must do, or we wind up in a, in a bloody fight. We all know that, the fight's coming.
6: The Oath Keepers began planning to block the peaceful transfer of power shortly after the November 3rd election. And according to the Department of Justice, Stuart Rhodes, the Oath Keepers' leader, said to his followers that we were not gonna get through this without a civil war. In response to the December 19th, 2020 tweet by President Trump, the Oath Keepers focused on January 6th in Washington, D.C. In response to the tweet, one member, the president of the Florida chapter, put on social media, the president called us to the Capitol. He wants us to make it wild. The goal was for the Oath Keepers to be called to duty so that they could keep the president in power, although President Trump had just lost the election. The committee learned that the Oath Keepers set up quick reaction forces outside of the city in Virginia where they stored arms. The goal of these quick reaction forces was to be on standby, just in case President Trump invoked the Insurrection Act. Did the Oath Keepers ever provide weapons to members?
5: I'm going to decline to answer that. I put them with grounds, trip for uh, a due process grounds.
6: In footage obtained by the committee, we learned that on the night of January 5th, Enrique Tarrio and Stuart Rhodes met in a parking garage in Washington, D.C. There's mutual respect there. I think we're, we're fighting the same
3: fight, and I think that's what's important.
6: The committee learned that the Oath Keepers went into the Capitol through the east doors in two stack formations. The DOJ alleges that one of the stacks went into the Capitol looking for Speaker Pelosi although they never found her. As the attack was unfolding, Mr. Tario took credit. In documents obtained by the Department of Justice, Mr. Tario said in an encrypted chat, make no mistake, and we did this. Later on that evening, Mr. Tario even posted a video which seemed to resemble him in front of the Capitol with a black cape, and the title of the video was Premonition. The evidence developed of well, the Select Committee and the Department of Justice highlights how each group participated on the attack on the Capitol on January 6. In fact, the investigation revealed that it was individuals associated with the Proud Boys who instigated the initial breach at the Peace Circle at 12.53 p.m. Within 10 minutes, rioters had already filled the Lower West Plaza. By two o'clock, Rioters had reached the doors on the west and the east plazas. And by 2:13, rioters had actually broken through the Senate wing door and got into the Capitol building. A series of breaches followed. At 2:25 p.m., rioters breached the east side doors to the rotunda. And then right after 2.40 p.m., rioters breached the east side doors near the Ways and Means Room. Once the rioters infiltrated the Capitol, they moved through the crypt, the rotunda, the hallways leading to the House Chambers,
5: and even inside the Senate Chambers.
0: Individuals associated with two violent extremist groups have been charged with seditious conspiracy in connection with the January 6th attack. One is the Oath Keepers, they are a group of armed anti-government extremists. The other group is the Proud Boys, they promote white supremacist beliefs and have engaged in violence with people they view as their political enemies. Members of both groups have already pled guilty to crimes associated with the January 6th attack. Mr. Quested, as part of the documentary you've been filming, you gain access to the Proud Boys and their leader, Enrique Tario. Your crew filmed them in Washington, D.C. on the evening of January 5th and then on January 6th. On January 5th, the night before the attack, you were with the head of the Proud Boys, Mr. Tario, in Washington, D.C. What happened? Um,
8: we picked up Mr. Tario from jail. Uh, he'd uh, been arrested for carrying um, some magazines, uh, some long, uh, some extra capacity magazines and Uh, for the, he took responsibility for the burning of the uh, Black Lives Matter flag that was stolen from the church um, on December the 12th. Um, We, um, we were attempting to get an interview with Mr. Tarrio. Um, We had no idea of any of the events that were going to subsequently happen. Um, uh, We drove him to pick up his bags from the property department of the police which is just south of the mall. Uh, We picked up his bags and went to get some other bags from the Phoenix Hotel where we um, encountered Mr. Stuart Rhodes uh, from the Oath Keepers. Um, By the time I'd gone to park the car, my colleague was saying who'd got into the car with Mr. Tarrio that they had moved to a uh, location around the corner, the parking garage of the, uh, Hall of Legends, I believe. And, um, so we quickly drove over there, we drove down into the parking garage and filmed the scene of Mr. Tario and Mr. Rhodes, uh, and certain other individuals, um, uh, in that garage. Um, we then continued to follow Mr. Tario. There was some discussion about where he was going to go. He ended up going towards a hotel in Baltimore and we conducted an interview with him in the hotel room. Um, and then we returned to D.C. for that night uh, in a, um, and what was interesting that night actually was that was the first indication that D.C. was much more Um, busy than it had been any other time we'd been here, because we couldn't get into the hotels we wanted to, and we um, ended up at a hotel that, you know, was not as satisfactory as we would have hoped.
0: Thank you. So what you're saying is you filmed the meeting between Mr. Tarrio and Oath Keepers leader, Stuart Rose, right? Indeed. You couldn't hear what was said, but according to the Justice Department indictment of Mr. Tarrio, a participant referenced the Capitol. Now on the morning of January 6th, you learned the Proud Boys would gather near the rally scheduled to take place near the White House. What time did you meet up with the Proud Boys, and what was happening when they met? Um, we met up with the Proud Boys
8: uh, somewhere around 10.30 a.m., and they were starting to walk down the mile, uh, in, easterly direction towards the Capitol. Um, there was a, 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 a large contingent, more than I had expected, and I was a, confused to a certain extent why we were walking away from the president's speech because that's what um, I felt we were there to cover.
0: So at 10.30 a.m., that's early in the day. That's even before President Trump had started speaking. Am I correct? Yes, sir. So how many proud boys would you estimate were marching together to the Capitol? Um, A couple of hundred. Potentially, yeah, I'd say a couple of hundred Proud
8: Boys were marching towards the Capitol at that point. At the time, was the area heavily guarded? No, that was, uh, we mem- I remember we walked past the, we walked down the mile, we walked to the ref- right of the reflecting pool, and then north along the road that leads to the Peace Circle. And as we were walking past the Peace Circle, I framed the Proud Boys to the right of my shot with the Capitol behind, And we see one sole police officer um, at the barriers, which subsequently breached. We then walk up and past a um, tactical unit preparing. And there's, you see that in the film where the man questions their duty and their honor. And you see maybe a dozen um, uh, Capitol Police um, putting on their riot gear.
0: So. How would you describe the atmosphere at that, that time? The atmosphere was, it seemed to be much darker. I,
8: I make efforts to create, um, a familiarity between myself and my subjects to, you know, make them feel comfortable and, um, the, the atmosphere was much darker than uh, this day than, than had been in these other in these other in these other days, and there was also a contingent of Proud Boys that I hadn't met before from Arizona who appeared to wear these orange hats, um, and had orange armbands.
0: So, when the Proud Boys went back down the hill to the peace circle, did a larger crowd start together? Well, no, first of all,
8: we went round to the back and down the steps, and we took some photographs on the east side of the Capitol, uh, and then we went for lunch. We went for tacos.
0: So, Mr. Quest you're a journalist, so you are careful to stick to things that you have observed. But what you've told us is highly relevant. Let me highlight a few key facts that you and others have provided the committee. First, there was a large group of proud boys present at the Capitol. We know that from multiple sources, you now estimate that there were around 250 uh, to 300 individuals that you've testified. They weren't there for President Trump's speech. We know this because they left that area to march toward the Capitol before the speech began. They walked around the Capitol that morning. I'm concerned this allowed them to see what defenses were in place and where weaknesses might be. And they decided to launch their attack at the Peace peace Circle, which is the front door of the Capitol complex. It's the first security perimeter that those marching from the ellipse would have to come to as they moved toward the Capitol. The Peace Circle walk was, walkway was always where the thousands of angry Trump supporters would arrive after President Trump sent them from the lips. The Proud Boys timed their attack to the moments before the start of the joint session in the Capitol, which is also where President Trump directed the angry mob quote, we fight like hell, end quote. He told them before sending them down Pennsylvania Avenue, right to where the proud boys gathered and where you were filming. Now, central question is whether the attack on the Capitol was coordinated and planned. What you witnessed is what a coordinated and planned effort would look like. It was the culmination of a months-long effort spearheaded by President Trump. Ms. Quested, thank you for your eyewitness account of the lead-up to the Breach of the Peace Circle. This brings us to a point in time where you and Officer Edwards were in close proximity. At this point, I reserve the balance of my time pursuant to 5C Section 8 of House Resolution 503. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Wyoming, Ms. Cheney, for questioning.
4: Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Officer Edwards, I wanna start by thanking you for your service and thank you for your courage. Thank you for being here this evening. Uh, I know that uh, it's not easy to relive what happened for you and and for the officers behind you and for the family members of officers Uh, in in the audience this evening, Um, but it's it's really important for the country to have a full accounting and understand what happened. Uh, I want to start, Officer Edwards, with a short clip that um, shows a horrible moment when you were injured as the Peace Circle was breached. Officer Edwards, can you describe uh, the crowd that had assembled at the Peace Circle as, as junior fellow officers uh, stood behind and guarded the bike racks at the Peace Circle?
7: Yes, yeah, so um, there were about, I wanna say about five of us on that line um, and there were, so there was our bike rack and then at the bottom of the Pennsylvania Avenue walkway or right by Peace Circle, there was another bike rack. And so the crowd had kind of gathered there. Um, It was the crowd led by um, Joseph Biggs, and they were mostly in civilian clothes. There were some um, who had military fatigues on. Um, We could see people with uh, bulletproof vests on, you know, things like that. Um, They didn't seem, you know, extremely cohesive but they had gathered there um, in their outfits um, but they had gathered there together and um, joseph biggs started he had a micro or a megaphone and he started talking about you know first it was things kind of relating to congress and then the tables started turning once the, um, what is now the the Arizona group is what you said, um, the crowd with orange hats, they came up chanting um, F-U-C-K Antifa um, and they joined that group. And once they joined that group, Joseph Biggs' rhetoric turned to the Capitol Police. He started asking us questions like, You've, you didn't miss a paycheck during the pandemic. Um, mentioning stuff about our pay scale was mentioned. And, you know, started turning the tables on us. And I've worked, I can, you know, conservatively say probably hundreds of civil disturbance events. I know when I'm being turned into a villain, and that's when I turned to my sergeant and I stated the the understatement of the century. I said, uh, Sarge, I think we're gonna need a few more people down here. (laughs) Um, And so after that, you know, I think uh, they started conferring. They went a little silent. They started conferring among uh, each other. I saw um, the person now identified as Ryan Samsell. He put his arm around Joseph Beggs, and they were talking, and then they started approaching the first barricade. They ripped the first barricade down, and they approached our uh, bike racks. You know at that time we started um holding on grabbing the bike racks you know there weren't many of us so i grabbed um the middle between two different bike racks and you know i I wasn't under any pretense that i could hold it for very long but i just wanted to you know make sure that we could get more people down and uh get our cdu units time to to answer the call so we started grappling over the bike racks. Um, I felt the bike rack come on top of my head. And I was pushed backwards. And my foot caught the stair behind me. And I, uh, my chin hit the handrail. And then I, at that point I had blacked out. But my, um, the back of my head clipped the concrete stairs behind me.
4: Uh, And you were knocked unconscious. Is that right, Officer Edwards? Yes, ma'am. But then when you regained consciousness, even with the injuries, you returned to duty. Is that right?
7: Yes, ma'am. You know, at that time, adrenaline kicked in. I ran towards the west front, and I tried to hold the line at the Senate steps um, at the Lower West Terrace. More people kept coming at us. Um, It just seemed like, you know, more and more people started, um, you know, coming on to the west front. They started overpowering us. And that was right about when MPD's officers showed up. Um, Their bike officers pushed the crowd back and allowed, um, our CDU units as well as theirs to form that line that you see um, that very thin line between us and the protesters or the rioters um, You know at that time I fell behind that line and um, For a while I started um, decontaminating people who had gotten sprayed um, and treating people medically
4: who who needed it. And then you were injured again uh, there on the West Terrace. Is that right, Officer Edwards?
7: Yes, ma'am. So um, after a while, I got back on the line. Um, I got, it was on the house side of the Lower West Terrace. And um, I was holding that line for a while. There weren't many of us over there. Um, And Officer Sicknick was behind me um, for most of the time, for about uh, 30 to 45 minutes that I was down there. Um, We were just, as the best we could, we were just, you know, grappling over bike racks and trying to hold them as quick as possible. Um, All of the sudden, I see movement. To the left of me, and I turned, and it was Officer Sicknick with his head in his hands, and he was ghostly pale. Um, which I, I figured at that point that he had been sprayed, and I was um, concerned. My uh, you know cop cop alarm bells went off um, because if you get sprayed with pepper spray, you're going to turn red. He turned um, just about as pale as this sheet of paper. And so I looked back to see what had hit him, what had happened, and that's when I got sprayed in the eyes as well. Um, I was taken to be decontaminated by another officer, um, but we didn't get the chance because we were then tear gassed.
4: Uh, And we um, are going to play just a a brief clip of, of that moment that you've just described, Officer Edwards. Officer Edwards, I just want to thank you for being here. Um, and and I know, again, how difficult it is. I know um, the family of Officer Sicknick as well, who's here tonight. Um, and um, one of the things one of the uh, Capitol Police officers said to me uh, recently was uh, to ask me whether or not, as members of Congress, all of us understood that on that day, on January 6th, when we were evacuated, from the chamber uh, were led to a safe, undisclosed location, whether we knew that that so many of you had rushed out of the building and into the fight. And uh, I can assure you that we do know that and that uh, we understand how important your service is. Uh, thank you for your uh, uh, continued work with our committee and the interviews, and um, thank you very much for both of you for being here this evening. Mr. Chairman, I yield back.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Miss Edwards, um, can you give us one memory of that awful day that stands out most vividly in your mind?
7: I can. Um, that time when I talked about falling behind MPD's line. I remember because I had been kind of shielded away um, because I was holding those stairs, so I wasn't able to really see what was going on over here. When I fell behind that line and I saw, I I can just remember my my breath catching in my throat because i what i saw was just a, a war scene it it was something like i'd seen out of the movies I, I i couldn't believe my eyes there were officers on the ground um, you know they were bleeding they were throwing up they were you know they had I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. Um, you know, I, I was catching people as they fell. I, you know, I was. It, it was carnage. It was chaos. I, I can't. I can't even describe what I saw. I, never in my wildest dreams did I think that as a police officer, as a law enforcement officer, I would find myself in the middle of a battle. You know, I'm, I'm trained to detain, you know, a couple of subjects and, and handle, you know, handle a crowd, but I'm, I'm not combat trained. And that day, it was just hours. Of hand-to-hand combat, hours of dealing with things that were way beyond any any law enforcement officer has ever trained for, Um, and I just remember I just remember that moment of stepping behind the line and just seeing the absolute war zone that the West Front had become.
0: Let me thank you uh, for your service and obviously your bravery uh, that you uh, have told the world about tonight. Uh, It's unfortunate that you had to defend the Capitol uh, from fellow Americans. Uh, None of us would ever think that that would have to happen, but it did. So let me thank our witnesses for joining us tonight and sharing their experiences with America. Throughout my chairmanship of this committee, I've continuously vowed that this committee will ensure a comprehensive account of the heroic acts on January 6th and that we will follow the facts wherever they lead. Your testimony is an essential part of that record and helps us do our job. Mr. Questet, thank you for sharing your footage and your account of the day's events with us. The images you recorded and have shared with the committee do a better job than any of our words in re- reinforcing the violence of January 6th. We hope that the power of your footage helped encourage all Americans to consider how citizens will search so much In common, could viciously brawl at the seat of their democratic government. Officer Edwards, thank you for your brave service as I indicated on January 6th and all you did to protect us and, most importantly, our democracy. If you and your fellow officers hadn't held the line against those violent insurrectionists, we can only imagine the disaster that would have ensued. Your heroism is the face of danger, is admirable, and your will to continue to protect and serve despite your serious injuries should be an inspiration to all of us. We wish you a continued recovery and look forward to seeing you back in uniform sometime soon. The members of the Select Committee may have additional questions for tonight's witnesses, and we ask that you respond expeditiously in writing to those questions. Without objections, members, we permitted 10 business days to submit statements for the record, including opening remarks and additional questions for the witnesses. The witnesses have just told us what they heard the rioters saying. Why they stormed the Capitol on that day? Now we're going to hear it from the rioters themselves, without objection. I include in the record a video presentation.
6: What really made me want to come was the fact that. You know, I had supported Trump all that time. Uh, I did believe, you know, that the election was being stolen.
3: Um, And Trump asked us to come. He personally asked for us to come to D.C. that day. And I thought, for everything he's done for us, if this is the only thing he's going to ask of me, I'll do it. We're going to walk down to
6: the Capitol. Did you recall President Trump mentioning going to the Capitol during
5: his speech? Oh, yeah. So that's one of my disappointments. He said he was going to go and go with us, that he
3: was going to be there. I know why I was there, and that's because he called me there and he laid out what is happening in our government. He laid it out. But I remember Donald Trump telling people to be there, right, I mean, to support. So you mentioned that the president asked you, uh, do you
6: remember a specific message? Basically, yeah,
0: he asked uh, for us to come
3: to DC, things are
5: gonna
3: happen. What got me interested, he said, I have something very uh, important to say on January 6th or something like that. Is what got me interested to be there.
6: You know, Trump has only
3: asked me for two things.
6: He asked me for my vote and he asked me to come on January
0: 6th. When the committee reconvenes next week, We're going to examine the lies that convinced those men and others to storm the Capitol, to try to stop the transfer of power. We're going to take a close look at the first part of Trump's attack on the rule of law, when he hit the fuse that ultimately resulted in the violence of January 6th. Without objection, and with with that, the committee stands adjourned.
1: Well, that's another really fascinating um, night. What incredible testimony we heard tonight from many people involved in the initial attempts to breach the Capitol, the perimeter of the Capitol, the Capitol Police there. Incredible testimony. And also this testimony by the documentarian who had firsthand accounts of what Enrico Tarrio was doing with Stuart Rhodes the night before the insurrection. And... uh, I think for the first time we've heard that the Proud Boys were in the indictment from the DOJ, but I don't think we've heard it so broadly stated that they were the first there, the first to breach the perimeter, the first to invite the rest of the crowd in, to ready the scene for the insurrection which followed for the next few hours. I thought that was pretty new. It's certainly something I'd been aware of, but not
2: to that great a detail. At the, that, that they were not, they, we just heard something major there, that they were not swept up in any moment. Mm-hmm. They were stalking the Capitol building, looking for defenses, assessing weaknesses the way a paramilitary would Mm -hmm. the way hostile soldiers would. And that was hours before Trump was giving his speech. And then they directed hundreds to follow their tactical advice. They wanted to play, uh, at a soldier and they did. Mm -hmm. And they were fighting against the United States in a way that uh, can only be recognized as uh, military tactics. And as such, declared themselves our enemies.
1: Yeah. And we've had footage on this show, specifically of the Proud Boys that morning, marching towards there and certainly um, saying some unusual things. But we did not know how close they were in terms of like... The actual scene of that perimeter being um, infiltrated, I think that's a very significant piece of evidence that we heard tonight and and something that really needs to be understood in terms of Roger Stone in particular, you know, we talk a lot about Roger Stone, um, his involvement in all of this, but his direct involvement really is with the Proud Boys. I mean, he is the guy who back in 2016, and I don't know the photo available right now, met with them in the West Coast, I think it was Oregon, and this photo then, and they certainly, there were around him a lot because they were his security detail a lot. I think Enrique Tarrio was very, very close to Roger Stone throughout this whole period of time. Now, you don't have to be, it's, it's, it's not only one step away from Donald Trump to realize that puts Donald Trump really one person away from people who started the infiltration there and the insurrection into the capital, and that Roger Stone is one of his closest advisors. We're no longer talking about trying to cross a mile of uh, territory here. This is one person we're talking about.
2: Well, we don't even need that. He said, I love you at the end of it. Huh. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew horrific. about it and he was told the whole time. And we know from general Milley that he did not call anybody, mm-hmm. um, to give them the authority or the command to defend the capital. Mike Pence did, but he didn't have the authority without while Donald Trump was still around, which really differentiates the two men and uh, changes Pence's role in this. I think we knew he was taking positive steps on preserving the Republic, but we've heard that now. That's why these hearings are important guys. Everyone is like, ah, we've all heard this. Nope. We've got very critical new information out there that changes helps evolve the story that we understand um, especially millie's
1: reaction to what trump told him that uh, he, what he was concerned about was narratives but it was around whether you know they could shift the narrative from mike pence being in charge to him being in charge i mean this is what you're worried about is the capital is being surrounded by violent mob and lawmakers are being threatened this is your reaction it's disgusting it's yep,
2: disgusting. spoken like a reality tv self-centered treasonous piece of sewage sure
1: when is America going to wake up or at least the parts of America that still think this guy is a viable leader of any form when did they wake up to this notion that this whole thing the entire Trump presidency was one ginormous lie created to just entitle him and his family and he's mobster friends to earn a fortune of money from you, the American people, because that is really, you look at all of this, you look at all, his only intention there, the only thing he wanted was to stay in power. That was the only goal that he had. And you know, the clip at the end there with one of the supporters saying, President Trump asked me for two things, his votes when we voted him in. And his help in staying in power that's basically all he cared about was staying in power and i don't know how america shakes itself out of this belief that he was something other than a con man and a liar but that's all he was that's all he is we can't press this i think you're giving him
2: too much credit yeah <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> probably um i mean they attempted to coordinate the end of uh, democracy he's worse than just a venal mob scumbag. Mm -hmm. I'm in St. Louis. We got tons of those guys around here. But Donald Trump was in a very specific position. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to talk about some of the other things that we learned. Um, The Nick quested there, who was obviously had a lot of evidence to turn over not only to this committee, but probably the Department of Justice as well, Mm -hmm. um, showing coordination. And while we can't hear in some of those audio clips, we can't hear, you, you know, the FBI can enhance audio, so you can hear things that. And might
1: there were not other people playing really
2: well on YouTube.
1: Yeah, and there were other people there, and it did seem to me like Tario looked very happy to be answering some of those questions in that Q and A with members. It said he was the former leader of the Proud Boys, and he's in the super when it showed him. We've had indications that he's cooperating, of course, for a while, but it would be interesting. Maybe his cooperation is quite friendly, and then we would know exactly what Stuart Rhodes was saying the night before at this particular event is we we've shown you before we, we ran an entire show last week about this meeting between stuart Rhodes and it was roll the tape here stuart Rhodes and
0: uh
1: ontario meeting underground in a garage
0: yeah, so, and stuart,
2: pleasure, uh,
8: pleasure, Ryan, hey listen do you need a vehicle to know
2: what you're driving do they know what you're driving. It doesn't matter. I, I, I'm sure that even if they were to come by right now, I'm, I'm on my way out. So I literally just picked up my bags.
4: So. so I thought they told you They didn't hours. give me the 24
2: hours. So. They didn't want, the reason I why they that, did that yeah. is that they didn't want me to go to tomorrow's event. I do
4: you,
8: you going on the Virginia
2: side? I'm going to go on the other side. I'm going to go to the Maryland. going north. The
4: okay.
8: Maryland? Yeah. I'm going to stay close just to make sure my guys are okay. okay.
2: And
7: I'm
4: gonna
2: So it's tomorrow? tomorrow and I got, I got a lot of stuff to do
7: tomorrow. Okay.
2: Give, me a, give me a chance
1: on this one. So then the camera crew peels away, but there are other people there, obviously, still listening to the conversation, having that conversation. And I'm sure if he is cooperating...
2: Well, and you never know—you never know who's wearing a wire—and there's yeah. all sorts of different surveillance yeah. techniques for the FBI. And they were had microphones on, so it's kind of an unusual thing to suspect
1: that they weren't there. Interesting to hear his description of Tario's meeting and uh, what did I think the language that they revealed there was—they respected each other, or they had mutual goals. I think that was new language that I'd not heard before describing that meeting
2: between the two of them yeah they were looking on overthrowing democracy yeah birds of a feather i guess while i uh, watched what the hearing was going on i updated this slide which we
1: started off the show with because liz cheney identified seven specific conspiracies now she's called them slightly different things but basically there's a seven play book here in terms of what was being done to overthrow democracy and you know, when you see it spelt out like this, you certainly don't think of this as a as a chance act or a chance, you know, uprising by protest that went wrong. This clearly was a very planned, expensive uh, operation that lasted for months, and we'll be learning more about this in the weeks ahead as the commission sure explains will. all of this. But there's a lot going on well, here. I mean, two seditious conspiracies, well, the Pence card stuff, the DOJ stuff. It's a lot here.
2: Well, and if you take all the foot soldiers that were part of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers seditious conspiracy, the other people who showed up who had been um, summoned uh, through Trump's tweets, but also attracted by robocalls set up by the Republican Attorneys General Association, Mm. the head law enforcement officers of a number of our states, those in the Republican Party, like uh, Missouri's Eric Schmidt, uh, Georgia's Chris Carr, uh, those guys helped through the Rule of Law Defense Foundation, a very ironically named group. They helped often while using state tax dollars, their state offices assets against the law. They use them not just for political purposes, but for seditious and helped put the foot soldiers behind uh, seditious conspiracy uh, parts of the wheel there. So I have a feeling we're going to hear more about that as uh, the next two weeks unfold.
1: You're very right about the Attorney General's Association. They, of course, were the key funders, to a large extent, of some of the people traveling to January the 6th. There's another um, related tape regarding fundraising before the January the 6th event, and I just want to make sure I have it. But it involves Roger Stone basically asking for money. So his security Isn't he always? Isn't he always? He is always, in fact, asking for money. Uh, but... This tape has not received a lot of attention, if any attention, and I don't know why it's been sitting in my archives for a while, but I want to play it for everyone so you get a sense of of where his head was at, raising money for these guys.
2: To help us have the impact we want to change
1: history and to stand up for the greatest president since Abraham Lincoln, please go to StopTheSteel.org, that's StopTheSteel.org, and help
3: us pay for the staging, the transportation, and most importantly, the security, of our peaceful protesters. Thank you, and God bless you. I'll see you in
1: Washington, January
2: 6th. I mean, regardless, that, that whole image there is just weird, beyond belief, but... Uh, now, there, weren't there some vendors who put up the staging who were actually, um, you know, regulars used by Paul Manafort, I believe? Oh. <laughs> it wouldn't yeah. surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean,
1: the hidden behind all of this is a lot of operatives, I've identified many of them as being Russian operatives, but there's a lot of activity going on behind the scenes here to make all these people not only radicalized, but show up on time. The hotels, the travel expenses, as Roger Stone was just fundraising there for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of money. There's a lot of money to get people there.
2: Sure. To, for uh, thousands of thousands Gas of money. People. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, glasses and all that weapons. Yeah. Um, we note that uh, we saw some footage there that uh, Stuart Rhodes of the Oath Keepers when asked whether he provided weaponry to other people, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, is a big no no in the Capitol. You can't have a super soaker there right. without getting somebody's hackles up, much less a firearm. Right. And, you know, he said, well, for, uh, I'm not going to answer for due process reasons or whatever. We basically pleaded the fifth. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the thing about the internet when you have these open spigots of money right and we had this uh, trucker convoy that was heading to mess up dc traffic a few weeks back and they got like 1.5 million dollars and it's like hmm, where'd that come from was there any money from uae saudi mm-hmm. china mexico venezuela i mean those are the right questions to be asking because it's so expensive to, to
1: do these things and america's not exactly you know, Americans, especially in the middle of the country are not exactly flush with money to
2: the point where they're like, oh, yeah, let's just go and attack this. This is a, These are tough times. 25% of the people who showed up there when they've been doing the demographics of who was at the attack, like one quarter of the people had declared bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. That is not the national average in terms of demographics for bankruptcy declaration. We've been so, talking about
1: this since day one. You and I have sat here for many years talking about... The infiltration of America by foreign intelligence assets and agencies infiltrating our ecosystem, our media systems, uh, infiltrating our politics, owning political parties, owning politicians across the country, and regaining a level of influence that is unparalleled. I mean, when you own the politicians, and you own the media, and you own every big industry in a country, in a state, or or city, boy. You have a lot of power and you want to make people upset about something, you'll make people upset about something because you control all the levers of power. So Americans shouldn't feel that this is being so much something that they've done, but it's something that's been done to them to a large extent. This is a, this polarization, which seems so artificial and is so artificial, it comes from a very sophisticated source and it certainly looks like the playbook that the Russians have been using for many years, many years. We sound like broken records over here, but it's one of those things that if we don't keep saying it, it's easy to forget. And then you're you're wondering why fellow Americans are acting like this. They're acting like this largely to the, to the point because they've been pushed into these corners, as you pointed out as well. With Fox News not covering tonight's hearings, I mean that's just in, uh, because they're part
2: time. of it. We- yeah we get the text between Sean Hannity and the White House while this is all going on. Mm-hmm. They're strategizing. That's why they're not covering it, because they're already eyebrows deep in this thing. It's the only thing that's left for Fox News is to go off the air and to go to prison. Mm-hmm. And really, the Americans
1: can do nothing better for themselves than to turn off Fox News tonight and never turn it on again. It is a piece of garbage. It's not news. It's not journalism. It is just a bunch of fancy lights parading in front of you a lot of lies. Lies that are designed to incite you to believe in leaders like Donald Trump, who's nothing more than a criminal. I mean, he's an absolute criminal. He's responsible for the deaths of people that day. and, And he doesn't even care. You know, I mean, it's not even like, we ever heard him even a note of remorse about the fact that people died on january the sixth nothing nothing at all all he cares well, about that is he's that
2: a sociopath yeah. i mean look these are sociopathic elements and it's hard for people that have kind of normal emotional structures and care about people and don't like to see people in pain and would like to see good things happen it's, it's hard to understand the effect of sociopaths yeah. which is the people that wanted to overthrow this democracy and want to do They wanted to subjugate us. And the reason that they don't show remorse is because they never had any to begin with. That's not a feature of their psyche. And uh, that's why we just have to be the grownups in a room here and just put the people in prison that need to go to prison. That's why we have prison. I don't think everybody who commits different uh, crimes uh, should be railroaded to prison. I think we have an over-incarcerate our population in the United States. But some people who are clear and present dangers to uh, the, the, the population here need to go away and pay for their crimes so they never happen again. And gosh darn it, I think uh, seditious conspiracy, uh, violent overthrow of the U.S. government, I think that's, that's a great use of penitentiary there. I think A whole so lot too. of people involved in this need to go.
1: And this goes to the entire leadership of the GOP that has been, people are still going to vote for these guys in November. And it's galling to think that these, this political party with that leadership may retain their seats in power in this November is unbelievable. But this group of people here in particular, these people were directly involved in everything that went on in January the 6th. They all need to resign and they do all need to go to jail. I mean, it's stunning that Kevin McCarthy still believes he has a place in politics. I mean, where in the world would you be have supported an insurrection and then find yourself still uh, joking well, the are, speaker?
2: These people were paid to be there. Many of them may have been compromised and they made their last decisions as an adult a long time ago. So, I mean, all right, if you you know, tell me that, but that's why they that. keep going. Yeah. Uh, hate know, to be there
1: by by like, by not good people presumably.
2: <laughs> Sex with farm animals on tape? Who knows? There's a lot of different reasons people do what they do. The number of true believers is is smaller than one would think, and the number of people that are just find themselves in uh, certain positions in society, uh, doing the bidding of people even worse than them. That you know, that's a thing. So who knows? But this is the this is the interesting thing about like when you get to the criminal uh, prosecution mm-hmm. you get a portion of this. It doesn't really matter their mindset at the time that they might have committed a specific crime, but to a degree, their motivation, unless it is just understood that they are political operatives and or ideological freak shows. Mm -hmm. But if they gave a tour of the Capitol so that these people would know where to go to try and kill Mike Pence, then that I don't really care why they did it. Mm-hmm. i don't care what their self-justification was or to get into whatever maga means to them i don't care did you take part in this seditious conspiracy uh, that had the end of the american republic as its goal mm-hmm. and did you give aid and comfort to enemy soldiers attacking deeper into the heart of this country than even the british or the confederates got if so go to prison I don't even mm-hmm. want to discuss it that much, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, did you do it? I and mean, we're and that's what that's what's happening here is we're getting the broader sense of this story. And sometimes I think I'm sure you and I both feel like we've been looking at these ugly mugs on these cards for a long time. And we've been telling the story, but with getting this through to a lot, you're talking about when is America gonna wake up here? Mm-hmm. To give me an idea of the laws of large numbers around this, Nixon didn't resign until his popularity was like 17%. And that didn't hit until like the last minute. It, it was like, not until the tapes came out, like he was still, I think I had to go get the charts, but he was still somewhere in the forties, low forties yeah, until correct. like then, then like the tapes, it was like, you know, well, you tell those rat bastard, and then, then America was like, oh, and then, you know, people started being indicted. And that's when George Herbert Walker Bush took a walk over to Nixon's office, sat down and said, uh, sir, you no longer have the support of your party. You can either resign and get on that. That chopper over there, or we're going to impeach you. As we now know, was
0: it Bush who did that?
2: It was George Herbert Walker Bush, forty-first president of the United States, was the man who walked in and was like, "Hey, (coughs) just wanted to have a chat. You're done." Bush forty-one becomes a more interesting character every year that goes by.
1: (laughs) He is certainly fascinating, and uh, stewardship of the CIA most interesting periods of his life interesting Uh, huh interesting yeah very interesting you mentioned um all these countries you know we've been calling them the multi-national conspiracy or alliance or whatever against democracy one thing that struck me listening to tonight's testimony and i went back and pulled up this one photograph which i I just can't ever escape is this photograph of benjamin netanyahu at the launch of breitbart the alt-right magazine which stephen bannon ultimately took into his own personal mission to build up the alt-right. So all those people who showed up on January the 6th, he built that force, that army, while he was uh, working at Breitbart. And it's surprising-
2: A strange anti-Semitic group, don't you
1: think? Yeah, yeah. And there's Benjamin Netanyahu, who really was at the heart of its launch. Um, Speaks volumes, this is not a new piece of information, but it certainly speaks volumes about the number of foreign interests that are meddling in our politics, that are constantly trying to move us into directions that are not the will of the American people. And when you see gridlock, where you can't pass gun legislation, which is common sense gun legislation, you know that's the reason why. The reason is because these foreign entities don't care about your ability to take your kids to school safely, they care about Disrupting America, they care about disrupting democracy. They probably care about the oil price, but that's as far as they go. And they want the oil price to go up, not down. I mean, that's really this. They are not interested. And American politicians who sell out to these foreign politicians have a lot to answer for. And uh, frankly, should all be under these additional charges. It's uh, it's clear what their involvement has been.
2: I think we need to let the facts uh, take us where they lead us. We. To recap what we heard tonight, um, you know, we found out just how vociferously Bill Barr claims to have rejected Trump's notions, being persuasive enough to take Ivanka along with him on that intellectual journey. Uh, we've got Liz Cheney claiming that we're going to hear how much the Trump people never believed this big lie to begin with, which is why it's a lie. Right. Mm-hmm. And we know that this was anything but tourism and anything but a coordinated paramilitary assault that had really nothing to do with anything spontaneous at Trump's speech. We know that uh, Enrique Tarrio was banished to Baltimore, and um, it was funny watching, they said he ended up in a, uh, what Quested was saying that they ended up in a Baltimore hotel, and the guy, it's very DC culture, like the guy guy behind him was like smirking, like, oh, you bastards ended up all the way up in Ellicott City or somewhere, like. (laughs) He had a a good line
1: not up to our satisfaction or something.
2: That's right. That's right. <laughs> really intense night. Nice yeah. to get a little D.C. humor yeah. in there like, oh shit, downtown Balmer or something. Okay.
1: But if there's um, one thing for people and, to have taken away tonight, it's this idea that this was not a spontaneous riot. This was something that was organized and it is clearly, and this is Melissa Cheney's words, we will show meticulously how a group of proud boys led a mob to occupy the Capitol. And I think that is breaking news. That is breaking news.
2: I. That's a big deal. Um, if there's another image that um, that I want to highlight for the audience, and this is on my Twitter under the thread of this show, there's a moment that I captured as it went by, it just struck me as so important. Officer Caroline Edwards describing her uh, heroic defense of this nation bodily and the injury she sustained. And uh, it's pretty horrific. And if you saw the video, you saw that um, she was trained to be a police officer. She was not wearing, you know, combat armor of any sort. She was left as a sitting duck out there by uh, members of the U.S. government who had the intelligence to know that this attack was on the way. And she was one of many who was left defenseless and still did her solemn duty and went beyond the call, was knocked unconscious, got back up after her concussion, went, fought more, tended to more wounded, sustained a traumatic brain injury. And there's a moment in the testimony where Benny Thompson says, Hey, we might see you back. Have a good recovery. We look forward to seeing you back in uniform. And when he said, see you back in uniform, she smiled after all that. She still wants to serve this nation and that is what this is all about, not just casting down and holding to account the villains, mm. but holding up the highest standards and ideals of this nation. And you see them, they come out when you least expect them and where they have least reason to after given that much, mm. but the whole shooting match there. I thought her testimony too. was remarkable um, and
1: touching and, you know, brought tears to my eyes. I think that there is a lot of heroism that went on that day, and that's the ultimate promise of America. I mean, we all live in a world where you know we can all choose to be good or bad, and this is really uh, what this battle has come right down to as we head into another election season. You know, people oversimplify it sometimes by saying it's light versus dark, it's good versus bad, it's whatever. It it's exactly where we're at. It's exactly where we're at in in this at this point of American history, and you know, pick a side and choose carefully because at the end of the day. I mean, you know, odds are the good guy is going to win. Hopefully, they're going to win. It certainly seems to me like that's where we're heading. Um, I thought the uh, hearing today was uh, well produced, and I was a little worried that it was going to land up looking like Good Morning America. It was not. I think uh, the Goldstone team there did a good job. It was interesting that we only heard from the chairman and the vice chairman. We did not hear from any of the other panelists. and. Uh, and other people on the DS, and I thought it was fine. It worked for me, I didn't mind that at all. And I thought it was well put together and extremely high pressure situation for these people to be testifying in prime time with a number of people watching tonight. And I think they all uh, were exemplary. I think they all did a great job testifying.
2: I mean, I think, you know, this really moved the rock. Mm. We really got a lot of work done tonight as a country and uh, kudos to everybody and rest up. We'll, we'll have more in a few days. And
1: uh, uh, on the tenth, and I should tell people that if they are still interested in downloading, a lot of people have been downloading this graphic, and I thank you very much for doing that because it really um, helps us fund this programming. But also, uh, I'm glad you appreciate all the, uh, the connections that it brings up. Um, so, for those of you who haven't uh, had a chance to to take a look at it and uh, download it, there's a digital download. I think it's under three bucks um, in most cases. Uh, so please check it out, and maybe you can become a proud owner of our digital download. It's also available in two different physical form in terms of it being a a binder and uh, also a poster. You can also support Narrative at patreon.com forward slash narrative. And finally tonight, um, if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're watching podcast or listening on a podcast later on, don't forget to subscribe as well and rate and review. And as that is the end of our latest I've ever been up with Narrative, way past my bedtime and hopefully my allergies uh, give way next time I see you.
2: Zev will be rocking the Claritin and taking tomorrow <laughs> off, folks. And uh, we'll see you soon enough. See you next Tuesday on Narrative. And thanks again for being here. Ciao.
1: Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.